Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I am here with Julian Wilson. He is a design engineer, the co-owner of Matt Black Systems and the co-author of 500% How Two Pioneers Transformed Productivity to the tune of 500% uh, and the first truly self-leading organisation. Julian, welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. And I should say, I feel somewhat remiss for waiting this long to, to get you uh, or get you or your, your co-owner, Andrew, onto the show because um, I first met Andrew at a meetup years ago and he described Matt Black Systems and I was really intrigued. Um, I've heard you mentioned by Dawna Jones, one of our previous guests, who's a writer on you know, management practice. Uh, Lisa Gill, who has another yeah. podcast and is big, is, is very interested in self-management. And and uh, so so all of these reference to to the work you've done. I now read the book and I'm blown away by the story. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, uh, it's about time we we heard this on the show. So I'm I'm delighted to have you here today, Julian. Fantastic. Thanks for um, thanks for inviting me. Um, so the book is our attempt at at recording our transition between a conventional organisation that we were to a different type of organisation. I, I have to say, at the start of this, we weren't a big proponent of you know, any, any of that hippie vibe that, that you like, Richard. Um, you know, we're two engineers and we had a business in crisis. And, and we transitioned, and this is where we ended up. Um, it's a much more healthy place to work for the, for the people within it. And... I read so many books about how the workplace should be, but very little about how you get from where you are to where you, where you want to get to. So our, I, I felt for posterity, we should just capture the, 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 the rocky road that we went on to, to, to transition from one to the other. And, and as a little bit of a roadmap and also to help people not make the mistakes that we made on the journey to, to condense it, because it took us ages. And, and there's very many false starts. And, you know, we were convinced things, we, we had our best ideas and we were convinced they'd work and they were rubbish. And, and we, we sometimes did things, experiments to prove they wouldn't work and then they worked brilliantly. And, and we're, every day we're like trying to work out what was wrong with the way we viewed our business. So I, I suppose the book is all about trying to, trying to shorten that journey for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take us back to the crisis. So describe the business and the crisis you were in, you know, place us in that, in that moment. Should we start there? Oh, it makes me anxious to think about it. Um, so um, it was, it's a small engineering business. And we make bespoke products. So I should say that, first of all, because so much of what we do isn't a repeat of what we did before. It's generally the same, but not identical. Most of our products run for two or three cycles and then they finish and then we go on to another product and then we, and we've got 20 or 30 cycles running simultaneously. So it's a bit of a logistical nightmare. It's start and stop. It's in some ways because it's so design orientated, it's a little bit of service industry as well as a manufacturing industry. So there we were. We were 15% of the stuff we delivered was on time. Everything else was late. Our production manager used to say he worked closely with our suppliers, with our customers. And that meant he'd ring them up to tell them they're going to be not going to get their stuff on time. 
85 percent of the time right 85 percent. yeah sometimes you know we delivered on time and there would be a little bit of a fanfare but other than that it was, and we had a massive back order book and our customers were, were desperate to deselect us um but we're we were one of the limited group of suppliers in the in the country so um you know and i have to i have to thank my my customers for the sticking with us as long as they did. Because if we'd been in a more commercial operation, um, a more competitive operation, should I say, I, I don't think we'd have given, been given the opportunity to, to keep trying to solve our problems. Um, and you're in the uh, uh, aeronautical, right? This is for... Yeah, aerospace. Aerospace. Yeah. Um, so it's airplane nice. cockpits, that sort of thing. Um, cockpit instruments. So we supply to the likes of you know, towers and... Various other uh, commercial aerospace businesses. Um, so we supply the second tier. Is what I'm trying to say. We don't. We don't necessarily supply the, the aircraft. Um, so we're we're way down in the in the pecking order of the industry. Um, but as uh, the industry is supplying specialist parts to right at the bottom. Um, so really late. Our productivity was lamentable. Um, but probably about right for the industry, but it it was to, at the point where it was difficult to make money out of the out of the operation, and every single problem in the whole organisation came to me, and you know, I had to solve that and and, um, and keep keep the monster fed, as it were. Um, and we, funnily enough, we weren't quiet in terms of business. We had we were overwhelmed with the amount of work we had really. Um, and our staff, I guess, about 30 people. Um, but that's so interesting. That, even, even though they're quite a tolerant industry, then you're, 80, you're late 85% of the time, but you're still overwhelmed with work. Yes. So the work we did wasn't rubbish. Yeah, it was good work, but it was uh, always late. Um, and you know, we had a 12-week delivery window. And, and our, our staff were saying, well, can we make it 16? Because that, well, that would solve it, wouldn't it? Um, which it didn't bother. Um, well, we had a, a couple of pivotal experiences. First of all, is there anything else you want to ask about that original business before I go on to, you know? Right, so I'm still trying to get the crisis. So you, but you've got, it sounds like you've got lots of work, but you're late all the time. Why is that a crisis for you? Oh, what's, I, I, what's the nature of the crisis? Our customers reached the end of their tether. So we got summoned over to a, a supplier conference um, in Chicago, we worked out that we averaged 181 miles an hour for the for the whole journey from, from door to to get in the bollocking and then coming back and get. Um, so it was, you know, it was a high speed bollocking, um, and that was one for one of our biggest customers. And but we weren't alone. They weren't alone in that. They were just basically saying we we're not going to place new work if you if you don't change your behaviour. We also, you know, it's difficult to wring profit out of what we're doing as well. People were fed up, um, stressed. Uh, I was stressed as well. Another crisis as well for me personally was just I was overwhelmed. I was fatigued. I used to go on holiday and just sleep for days and days because of the, of the pressure I felt under. Um, Andrew 
came to join us as a as a turnaround consultant and he and he he'd never experienced anything like the you know we were we were we felt like one of those um you know this tennis ball firing machines where you can practice returning a serve sort of thing yeah, yeah. and we, we it was just like we stood in front of 10 of those firing tennis balls i, I found him one day in the office stood over the fax machine as new orders were pouring out of it every morning and saying how do you stop this how do you switch this off because they weren't you know even solicited wasn't stuff we'd quoted for it was just pouring out the fax machine every morning saying oh we need this we need this we need this and everything was allowed so yes the crisis was was um, difficult to be profitable, very late on work, and our customers eventually reaching the end of their table. And it sounds like what, so one of the first steps to address this was to get Andrew in, who became yeah. what a co-owner and is ultimately co- another a co-author of the book, right? Yeah, yeah, because he had all the answers. Look, he came from a big business background, and he was, I mean, he's a clever man. Um, so he came in with a classic, you know, standardized and, and um, make the thing run like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Um, yeah, that didn't work at all. Um, but nevertheless, he had lots of experience and, and, you see, and he was working as a turnaround manager as well at the time, um, having left the business. Um, and what he was doing was successful and he made sense and I really enjoyed working with him. So, you know, that's how we, ended up working together on the project. I think we thought, both of us thought at the time, we could just, you know, well, you know, oil it, you know, get that machine working like a clearing along. And, you know, we'd be swimming. But it didn't work like that. The more we tried to fiddle with it, the more we tried to improve it, the, the, the less responsive it became. Also, people get you know, change fatigue, do you know what I mean by that? Mm. Some new new program gets introduced, whether it's lean or whatever, and, and people just go, you know, thing. Another thing to learn the vocabulary of and just pretend you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, what have I got to say? No. Just tell me what to say and I'll say it. Right, exactly. Compliance. Compliance yeah, yeah, to yeah. the to the to the game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that no, no, that makes sense. So what were some of the things you tried then that, that, that you and Andrew tried to start with? What was some of the oil? Well, the obvious thing was lean, wasn't it? I mean, that was, yeah, make the thing more efficient. Um, so we were enrolled. I say enrolled, we were, um, we took part in a program that's sponsored by the UK government um, to introduce lean manufacturing into the aerospace, down into the aerospace supply chain. And we're sort of enrolled on, on, on that. It was a bit of a gun to our head, really. If you don't do this, then this will fix you. So you, know, you have to do it. So, um, and that's the scariest words. Scariest words in, the, in English, isn't it? The, uh, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so we embarked on this lean program. We learned all the new words. And... Um, I suppose Andrew was very experienced with lean, uh, but in um, a repetitive big business, um, which was a, a fast-moving commodity market, and it was it, that its approach is very different when you're talking about a bespoke, more service-oriented business. Um, 
And we did lean, we invested a lot into it. For a small business, we invested a lot into it. And it, it just, it didn't deliver at the bottom line. It delivered in increments data. I'm being vague here. So specifically what would happen, the consultants would come in and they'd, they'd look at an area which was under constraint. And they'd say, okay, so if we improve the efficiency of this machine, it will be able to produce 10% more things, 10% more widgets an hour. And let's say that was, I don't know, a spraying area or something. Um, but the problem is they then take that same 10%, 10 minutes, whatever it was, say 10 minutes a day, and multiply it by five, well, that, that, well, that's 15 minutes a week, isn't it? And you multiply that by the number of weeks in a year, well, that's, that's you know, 52 hours a year, and that's worth a certain amount of money, and that's how much you save. But that's assuming that constraint has now allowed you to sell more stuff. Because if it hasn't allowed you to sell more stuff, your income hasn't changed. Yeah. And your costs haven't changed. It's just perhaps the machine now stands idle an extra hour a week. Anyway, so we did this big program, and at the end of it, we saw no change at the bottom line. So it cost us money, and the worst case was, it was when we removed the investment and the training, it actually went back to the way it was. In Lean, they call this the grass growing back. So unless you keep that pressure of lean being pushed on people, then they revert back to old behaviors. Um, now, it's been a bit cruel to Andrew here and saying, you know, all these ideas are rubbish. And that's not true. One thing he did right at the beginning, which was really good, is we put measures in place. So we knew this program wasn't paying off. Even the consultants reported the fact it was a great success. We felt robbed, by the way, because having worked out the 30 grand of savings that our, the processes improvements had made, our customers then asked for half of that. So they asked for a 15,000 pound reduction in price per year. And, you know, on top of the cost of the program. So you think, oh, okay. And of course, that's ongoing as well, isn't it? Every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that wasn't great. And I've spent our oh, ages picking over the, the, our lean program, trying to work out, you know, what went wrong. I mean, there must be, I mean, the tools must be rubbish. Must, I mean, it stands to reason. We did it, just we've got the expensive consultants and we did it and it didn't work. There must be something wrong with it. And everything I looked at, I just kept coming up with, yeah, these are okay, these tools are right. They, they, they definitely would work. You can, you can cook using them. You know, it's not, they're not rocket science. Then I started to think, well, perhaps the problem is not, not with the lean itself. So I went, I went back to some of the original translations of the lean program from Taichi Ono, some Japanese translations. Japanese books translated into English from a long time ago. And they're really fascinating. They, they weren't the westernized version of lean that we're so familiar with. We weren't the control the process and you control the outcome version of lean that we're all familiar with. It was more about um, the engagement of the worker in the 
process and to keep the product moving rapidly through their production line. <clears throat> that was very different. That was very different to what we, the consultants were preaching. So I started to think to myself, well, there's something else going on here. There's something, there's something in addition to the lean tools itself, some context which was which was which was missing in our organization, which undermined the success of the tools. And that set us on a journey of trying to work out what on earth that might be. So our measures allowed us to experiment and because we didn't know, I mean, oh, no. in hindsight, it's obvious, isn't it? You think everything we put around people was disincentivizing them for improving productivity. But it's really simple. But the people on the shop floor absolutely know that if you increase productivity, that's going to mean less overtime or loss of jobs. I mean, it's not rocket science. And, and so it's not in their best interest to improve productivity. You have to have the mindset of like an investor or, a, or a, <clears throat> oh, I don't know. You have to have a mindset of, I mean, even, even the, the green revolution, you have to have that mindset of making things efficient and, and reducing waste, whether that's energy or, or materials um, or just uh, movement. But for most people, you know, work descends to, well, this is how I pay my bills, this is what I do to get along every day. And they don't work as an individual on their own, they work in a team and whatever they change has an influence on the people around them. So there's lots of reasons why maintaining the status quo is the best thing to do in the workplace. And was this a light bulb that you, you know, a moment that you had having reviewed the failure of the lean initiative? Is Oh, no, I'm a genius. Oh, yeah, no, that, it, it's a whole thing mapped out in a single picture in an instant. Yeah, that, no, no, it wasn't like that, Richard, sadly. I stumbled around in the dark trying to find some sense in this. And bear in mind, I had all sorts of preconceptions and ideas about how the working world was, which are based on my perspective as an owner and a, an investor, but also... Um, you know, I participate on the shop floor, so it wasn't uh, like I sat in an office somewhere. As a design engineer, you're in the, in the thick of it, designing stuff, implementing them, sorting out the problems through development and, and, and <clears throat> working through the introduction of production into the, into, the, into the team. So I was very familiar with the world, but that gave me a certain perspective on the world. And... I had lots of errors, errors of judgment. So, I mean, things just deteriorated really and just got worse and worse. And the more we tried to change, I talked about uh, change fatigue, people get, oh no, another, another change. We eventually moved our, we had three factories. We eventually moved them into one big factory to, to consolidate it all and you know, make everyone much better. And that's another interesting point, you know, on reflection, we had different teams in three factories, and yet they're all demonstrating the same sorts of behaviors. And we never stopped to think to ourselves, oh, hold on a minute. There must be something common between these three factories because it's not the people and it's not the factories. Mm -hmm. 
And we never stopped to say, okay, what is it that we, we've implemented, which is identical in all three factories, that, should, that could be um, um, encouraging the same behaviors? And of course, it was our systems. <clears throat> so, in overview, what I've learned is that people are hugely adaptive. And what they adapt to every single day is the people around them and the systems that they have to interact with. And if you make those systems, I mean, you know, efficient like a machine, that doesn't help people to interact with them and interact with them, with them on a positive and progressive way. And often, the only way they fit into that system like a machine is to behave like a cog in a machine, you know, like, a, like an integral part to it, which is completely robbing of their humanity. And of course, some people just, you know, plod on, it's only a job, isn't it? I close my eyes and pop my ears and I just push on. And other people will just constantly try to kind of destabilize it and, and rile it because of their frustration. Um, and that, that's perfectly normal and perfectly natural and perfectly human thing to do in the absence of any other option. Because you feel trapped, don't you? Um, so we were incredibly stuck and our experiments have been completely um, uh, unproductive. And we did have a light bulb moment. We had a light bulb experiment. So I was pouring over our data, you know, going back to, to historical data, looking at things and trying to, why is it that it's like this? And what I discovered was we made the same product at different times, say during the year. Once a quarter, we'd spent two weeks making a product. I went over the data for that product every time we made it, every quarter. And what I found, to my surprise, was productivity was completely different in each time we made it. That was really strange. But the weird thing was, in aggregate, along with all the other things, all the other projects it was, it was being combined with, choreographed, the overall productivity for each two-week period for the whole business was exactly the same. So it was like the productivity of each product was being changed, stretched or compressed, depending on the workload in the factory itself. Right. So that was like, a, you know, a waiter carrying a, a tray of drinks falling down the stairs and then the, the drink never getting spilled, you know? And you think, yeah, that's not a random occurrence, is it? So I started scratching my head thinking, well, what on earth? What could explain that? Three different factories, the complicated logistics which would have to take place in order to choreograph that in a, what can I describe it as a, as a, um, an organized, thoughtful, oh no, we'll, we'll show them sort of, Conspiratorial, yeah. I, it, it was just impossible. I mean, it would, it would. I don't think anybody in the organisation was capable of doing that, even if they sat down and had meetings all day. So, it left me thinking. Well, this is occurring. Could it be something inherent in our in our rules and systems? So we did this experiment. We banned overtime. Oh dear, that was a meeting. 
Try and read together. Okay, the good news is, yeah, that wasn't good news. Um, however, the experiment was quite elaborate. And what we did, we said, look, we're going to ban overtime. We're not going to have any overtime. Actually, we're not going to pay you for overtime. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you a bonus equivalent to your overtime that you were getting before. So you're not going to be any worse off. And we couched this experiment in terms of it being um, a way of improving the, the, the kind of bureaucrat, bureaucratic and clerical exercise of adding up all the timesheets in the payroll. So it's a back office improvement. You, it's just as long as you get the work done, you know, we're not going to measure the time anymore. So we took the clocking machine off the wall and said, you know, we, we trust you, you know, get on with it. But nothing has got to change. Nothing at all must change because, you know, it's just, it's just this improvement in the back office bureaucracy. So as far as everyone's concerned, nothing should change. Well, people weren't very happy about this. And they weren't happy because they'd lost a way of controlling their income. Now they're overturned to fixed income. Anyway, we said, look, the only way we're going to, that everyone was willing to implement it is if we said, well, carry on the experiment for six months and then we'll have a vote. And if you want to go back the old way, we will. So off we went. First month, nothing changed. Second month, one person who had a hobby said, you know, I'll, um, I'll get my work done so I can leave early and, or leave on time and go off and do my hobby in the evenings. And at the end of the second month, everyone was quite crowded around their payslip to see if they'd still got paid the overtime because they knew he wasn't working anymore the overtime. Did he get the money even though he wasn't doing the hours? By month five, only one person was doing any overtime at all. And our output hadn't changed. So the business was no better off, but we jumped 20% productivity in four months. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's enormous, isn't it? I mean, a 20% yeah. from any change program is enormous. Okay. So, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> you know, you're in a race car and then suddenly you find a button underneath the dashboard that says, oh, go 20% fast. Well, that doesn't happen, does it? I mean, how on earth did we jump 20%? So then we realized that people were adapting to something, something which is holding productivity back. And, you know, and try as I might, you couldn't blame them because we, we were the one who introduced all those overtime systems and, and um, work cards and the processing um, logistical systems. It wasn't them. They'd adapted to a broken system that we'd introduced. And in honesty, our systems were never designed. They were just patches on patches and, and, and fixes to problems. They, they kind of aggregated over years. They'd never been designed. Never, we never sat down like an aeroplane and designed that, the whole thing as a whole and said, oh, this is work, this is brilliant. We just stumbled along through, through 20, 30 years of saying, oh, this has gone wrong, what do we do? Well, we'll put this in place, we'll fix that. So you have systems which are incoherent and incomplete. You have systems which are counterproductive. You have systems which, which promote behaviors which are contrary to, to what you want. Um, you know, the unintended consequences and, and the perverse incentives that you have in, in multiple kind of random patches you've got. 
you know, we see this in, in the medical world, don't you? You have to take a pill and you're a lot better, but you've got some side effects. They give you another pill. So you take two pills now, one to counteract the side effects of the first one. No, I'm, you know, I'm a bit better, but I've got another set of side effects. So they give you a third, so it's, you know, like a, it's like a big pill tray every morning. And the last pill you take that, you know, counteracts the last set of side effects gives you the very thing that you started with. <laughs> right. <clears throat> um, and kind of that's how our system was. It was, it was, and you can't. There was no malevolent attitude behind this. It was just poorly designed systems with a reductionist and deterministic view of how work was. Like, like a business is like a machine. They say uh, it's a money making machine. Yeah, so some people regard businesses like that. In fact, it's much, I believe it's much more constructive to think of a business as a social institution. Because for a start, businesses often don't make money. And most of the interaction between people is, is at the level of, of a social interaction. And it, it's not that it solves problems. It's that it opens your mind to a different set of solutions. So you can start experiments which are more based on the social interaction of people rather than just the mechanics. So we started... I was just thinking, you know, the two aspects of that experiment that you set up which struck me, and the first is uh, you said you trusted people. so So you trusted them you know, to work in good faith, right? You know, that was the first thing you said. And the second thing, you said you'd give them a vote at the end of it. So in, in two ways, it, it seems to me you were, um, tr- yeah, you were, in, you, were, you were coming at that experiment, even the experiment as framing it as an intervention in a social institution, right? And, and you were coming at the place, going back to your original work, work reading of the social production system as it, uh, respecting the workers, which he talks about, yeah, uh, and you're um, engaging them in the in the process because you're saying, oh, and you get a vote from it. So it's like it seems to me like you. Am I right to say that that thinking and that reading was starting to bleed into how you were doing this experiment? Definitely. I mean, I I came quite early on to the to the perception that people are hugely adaptable, and what they're adapting to is the systems that we put in place. So if there's any error in here, it's in us putting this compromised systems in place. You can't blame people for adapting to it. Um, So I never felt that the people were fundamentally broken. If anything, we were were doing them a disservice. But what, what is the alternative? You know, every business is set up like this. It's, it's, there must be something in the air. Do you know, because we've we set up businesses like we did in the 18th and 19th century. And, I, and I, it's really difficult to know where it comes from. Yeah. So if you look at small businesses, you get the, the plumber who comes around, you think, oh, fantastic, he's doing a good job fixing pipes. He gets a bit more busy and he says, oh, well, I need a lad. And you get somebody to run to the back of the van and pick up bits and, and you know, hold the hot thing while you're soldering it. Yeah, and you think, 
Why, why did he choose that? Why is this, why is he formed this hierarchy straight away? Why didn't he get this colleague who's equally qualified as a plumber and work together to share the work when he got busy? Why didn't he get some, a subordinate in? You know, where's, where's the training that says, you know, first day of plumbing school, what you never do is you never get somebody in who might compete with your skills. You always get a lad in. Oh, they I'm sure they don't do that. But it's, it's how everybody reacts. And I think it's partly to do with giving people jobs you don't like. I think that might be part of it. The other thing I think it may be part of is the very first, to use your phrase, social institution we experience is the family. And yeah. families are very hierarchical, right? Or tend to be. The default for a family is a, is, a, is a hierarchy, right? Fantastic. So I think this is this is very much the parental view of organisation. Yeah, exactly that. And the family kind of sticks out in the... You know, we call our organisation a fractal organisation because it follows the rules of the wider world. So... A whole world uses a, a, a certain system of, of, of organisation, which is dispersed. And countries use the same, and economies, that centrally controlled economies don't work so well. And then you get to cities and towns and villages. And I see them like as Russian dolls, you know. My metaphor in my head is Russian dolls. And each one is a, a, a replica, but smaller, of it, its surroundings. And they nest into each other. You know, democracy fits into that. Um, and then you get down to the family, which is a, which is a simple hierarchical pyramid. But that's how all our organisations are structured as well. Well, it seems at odds with everything else. You look at the shops on the high street, they're all individual and all running the same basic model. And you think, but once you go in the four walls of the shop, it's a hierarchy. It's a completely different model to the high street itself. Do you see what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. It's not like there's a, a big shop that's in charge of all the little shops. Right? Exactly, exactly. And yet they all muddle along together and they're all, they're all like on the high street. They're at the top of their supply chain that spreads out through, through manufacturers and, and traders throughout the world. And yet it just occur on your high street next cheek and jowl with each other. And you think somehow that works. And that works well. But within these organisations, we don't run like that. And look, it, it just, I'm just surprised about how we, we don't reflect on the design of our organisations, how they're structured, whether they're hierarchy um, or whether they're a heterarchy, you know, like a, a group, like a cooperative, who make decisions collaboratively or whether they're using responsible autonomy, which is a more bottom-up system. Um, and there, there's, there seems to be no exploration of the different ways. I mean, the, the bottom-up stuff now, you know, take eBay, for example. It's a hugely bottom-up organisation, which just facilitates a whole load of transactions underneath them. Um, now, there's still a system, there's still a framework, but what you haven't got is eBay setting prices and telling people what to do and, and it's just a, a an operational framework that people can engage in however that's that's not what we got we did our overtime experiment that proves something else was going on 
and left us in no doubt that we could improve productivity. And when we looked at what people did, they were doing things, well, our little problems, our little unexpected problems disappeared. And that was the main change in productivity there. So people were anticipating problems and circumventing them, so they didn't, they didn't happen. Um, having, so having done that experiment, because the productivity went up and then plateaued, because they weren't doing overtime anymore. So then we, we, we augmented that experiment with an additional one, because they all voted to keep it great, where we said, look, you still want extra money, you still want to be in control of your money, so let's look at our border backlog, and if we can work it off, we'll share with you the, um, the profits we're making from the extra work. Um, so we had, uh, for a while there, we had a, an overtime, no, sorry, a backlog bonus. So as the, order, as the backlog order book reduced, so we were able to say, oh, there's, there's 10 grand in the pot for everybody to share. So, um, and that, what, what we then got was having plateaued for a while, the productivity started to rise again as people were now aiming to, to, to get some of that cash in their pocket. Now, a part of this is, you know, that sounds like it's very, like a cash rewarded system. So you do this, you get paid that. Um, and that's a bit of a misinterpretation because the truth was we were paying very low wages. Our salaries were low in order to try to make it work. So people were strapped for cash, so inevitably, you know, whatever they could do, they would do. Um, what was interesting for us was the behavioral changes that it, that it elicited. Um, and again, curiously, across quite wide the, the wide area of the logistics in the whole organization there was they were they were organizing things in quite sophisticated ways it wasn't as simple i'll just work slightly harder they'd often be doing things which just avoided a problem um and you know we at the same time we were doing all these visits to different companies looking at you know how we went to visit nissan and toyota to try and work out, well, it works there, so what do they do differently? And, and it, was, it was very curious, the lean in the Toyota factory in the UK wasn't like the lean of Taichi and his book. It was far more regimented and far more strict. I remember seeing this guy who was putting in a dashboard into a car and Obviously, it's a big thing, width of the car, and the car has no doors and no windscreen and stuff. And it has to, the dashboard has to wind its way in. It has to describe a certain path and orientation as it fits into the car. And you obviously didn't want to bash the paint or bash the dashboard on the way in. So they had this, 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 this gantry on rails that held the dashboard, and you just had to push it. And it, you know, it followed this. this convoluted um, rail that guided the dashboard in perfectly. And it was a great metaphor for what they were doing uh, in the car factory, that everything was super controlled. 
and there wasn't, and that investment was really worth it because what they're doing is the same thing every time. But for us in our little business, that was impossible. You know, we weren't going to be able to automate to that degree. And it also left me with a sense of claustrophobia. You know, it was, you know, you really had to fit in. You really had to be okay with being like a robot. All you did was push the machine. God, they had this little, they had this little, you know, that little train thing you go from like Disneyland car park to Disneyland. There's a little, yeah. and there's a, well, they had one of these to take around the site. And it was on like an old airfield or something. And, and we were all, you know, all these business people in their ties, they were all sat in this little Disneyland train. And the women at the front steering had a little mic on, and she was talking, you know, this, there's the, uh, the engine plant, and over here's where we do the windscreen wipers. And we're driving across between two of the main buildings. And it's just a massive sea of car park. Tarmac, you know, like, a, like an airfield. You can look this, it was so much tarmac, you could almost see the curvature of the earth, you know, on the horizon, you know, it was just, and it was, it was a bleak north of England, you know, it was slightly, it was cloudy and slightly windy, and we all sat there, struggling along in that little, and um, we went, the, the, there's, a, there's a real curve on this thing, there's a real hill on it, and we got to the top of this hill on this huge expanse of time, acres and acres of it. Just can't express that enough. And we're following a painted road on the tarmac. It's just lines. And right at the, the, the summit of this little brow, there's a crossroads. And we're at the front, break the track, and we she went, bid it, and then carried on again. Clearly, that's what she'd been trained to do. But more than that, that's what the culture was. You know, there was uh, there wasn't anybody within three quarters of a mile in any direction except everyone behind her. And we'd stop and she'd pivot it and off she went again. And it really struck me how everybody in this organization was really, really constrained, very rigidly, what they could and couldn't do. And that must and again, be familiar. I'm just thinking that for so many people, that was, you know, the dumb things we end up having to do just yeah. because it's the way you do it around here. Yeah, at, at, at the point of not fitting in if you don't, not being the right sort. If you don't fit in. Um, and it left me with that feeling, yeah, this isn't this isn't the lean of Taichiana. This is something different. This is a Henry Ford production line where every time the workers ask for more money, you just turn the production line up to go faster. You know, do you remember that film, that old Charlie Chaplin film? Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, and he's put to work on a production line and it's it's how, I mean, Henry Ford was kept having to pay people more just to attract them because it was such a hellhole working there. But anyway, I digress. The point is that the, the lean we were experiencing, we were being advised to, was very mechanistic, very reductionist and deterministic. And, and we needed something different. We needed the engagement of the minds and the imagination and creativity of our workforce to solve problems on a daily basis not somebody who's just willing to work like a robot so experiment after experiment we started to realize there were things that 
you should have a system do and things you shouldn't have a system if it's in the best interest of the organization then if people are on the same page they should do that automatically if it's a legal requirement then you probably have to have a system in place to achieve it so a fat return, health and safety, all those things which are legal requirements you have to put in place almost mechanistically to make sure they're done and they're done properly. There's no room for cutting those corners. On the other hand, all the, all the creative and imaginative stuff, all the cooperative stuff, you shouldn't be legislating that. That should be part of that social melee that's going on within the organisation to bring the outcome to bear in the, in the best possible way in the moment, given the context of the moment, you know, what you're making, what other things are going on, what skills you've got, what suppliers you've got, the demands of the customer, et cetera, et cetera. So we started to experiment more and more how we could take away all the prescriptive instructions that we saw in those lean car companies and how we could do more things which are in line with Taichi Ono's book, which is saying, big picture, the customer order, customer contract, that's ultimately what's got to be achieved and reward people for doing it. So, paradoxically, we, we went back down that lean program again, and this time connected the customer contract with a, a multidisciplinary team. And as time went on, those teams got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and we started then to develop an internal supply chain. Really, look, Richard, it, we were doubling up um, operations. We were double handling things. We were doing you know, health and safety in each different cell. We were doing um, quality inspection. We had test equipment in each different cell rather than having one central function of department the goods went there, they were tested, and then came back again. And we did so many of these experiments to prove how, how futile and, and wasteful that was, doubling up every year. I need to find time and time again, it, was, it produced hugely beneficial results. We had centralized purchasing. And only afterwards did we realize that, of course, what's happening in the cell itself is they were they're finding out what they needed to purchase and they were um, providing the part numbers, they were providing the quantities, the, the time scale, and also the supplier that previously got it from. And then they were providing that information to our stores, centralized stores, but then go through what they had in stores. And then whatever there was a shortfall of, they'd provide the purchasing guys who then procure it. Then the goods would come into stores and then be decanted into the cell. And you realize everything was double handled anyway. Why didn't you just get the guys in the cell just to go to the supplier and hold the stock for, that they needed? So in, in a, a, a mad experiment, we said, well, that can't work. Because so, we'd, we'd have all these different purchasing people. We'd have all, yeah, it's a paperwork nightmare. So we gave it a go. It was brilliant. It really worked well. Our logistics really, really improved. Our supplier satisfaction improved. Um, although some struggle with the idea that they were having two or three 
people ringing them up asking for stuff and placing orders on them. But most of the larger companies we dealt with treated every order separately anyway, every demand as a, as a separate entity anyway. It was only the smaller businesses who had that relationship where they were nesting everything together and wanted, they were managing very closely with our production manager what was going to be done and when it was going to be done. So they found it a little bit difficult to have three different production guys, uh, sorry, purchasing guys. But just talk to, but I just, so, okay, so the experiment is you're like, okay, well, we've done this overtime, it's worked, right? And we've done the back order bonus and it's worked. What's next? Let's, let's try and create these cells, these small sort of mini companies, if you like, within yeah. the larger company. Uh, and one of the first ways to sort of, I suppose, f- create a more formed mini company was to give them the purchasing responsibility. Yeah. But what I'm slightly confused is why would you, why would you, why would you run that experiment thinking you're going to make it more inefficient? If your assumption was actually it's more efficient to have a centralized purchasing function. Do you know, desperation. Why do we do experiments that we were pretty sure would fail? We did those experiments just to be sure, because we'd had so much experience of us doing things which were absolutely sure would work, and then they didn't. Right. So we knew there's some serious flaws in the way we understood our business. And we, we were just ordinary people who'd had years and years of experience of a certain way based on a certain set of assumptions. So when we come to doing things and finding some of those assumptions were wrong, first of all, you say, well, we can try other things and that will work. And then you, at some point you start saying, well, we ought to double check some of the assumptions we've got and just run that experiment to show, yeah, we're doing the right thing, we've centralised, we've got nice experts. What we've got is we've got experts in these different areas who we know all about testing, we know all about purchasing. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, we have to control our finances and it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's obvious to anybody. And then we'd say, well, we were so wrong about all this other stuff. Look, it's not going to cost as much to do an experiment. So we do the experiment and it turns out brilliantly. And it's just another nail in the coffin of, the, of all the assumptions and, and the, the model that we were running. Till eventually, we said, you know, it's the model that's wrong. We're, we're viewing this paternalistically. We're view, viewing this as controllable. We're not viewing this as, as a collaboration. We're not viewing this as a, 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 an institution of adults who are all able to pursue their own purpose and their own interests. And then, so, and that would make us step back away from the functions and say, okay, what's really important here? We've got four measures. Four measures are important to our customers. And then we can measure whether or not the activities that are taking place are profitable. And what are those four measures? QDP and C. Oh, look, I've been trained. Um, QDP quality, which is, did the customer complain? about anything they got. So it's essentially based on customer complaints. Um, and quality is a very broad basket. Um, delivery, customer asked it on a certain date, did it go out on that certain date? Um, price, that's the, 
that it seems paradoxical, but often products weren't invoiced for the, at the price they were quoted for. So we always measure what's the, what's the amount the customer expects you to pay, the amount they pay. And um, C is control. And that is, is the story of the production of something. In the aerospace industry, you have to have a provenance of everything. Raw materials and the processes took place on those raw materials. So you have to be able to reconstruct the manufacture of something from a, from a paperwork trail. And we call that control. So has everything been controlled well enough to be able to reconstruct the story so that you can tell what batch number of materials used on this particular instrument in, for this particular aircraft in, in 2003. Um, it's an essential part of aerospace delivery. And, and look, it's the same nowadays in food, the food industry. You've got to be able to tell which cow the beef burger came from. And that's why they've got little tags on their ears. Um, and that provenance is, is, is part of the regulatory environment we're operating. Um, so we've got QDB and C, and then on top of that, we have the customer contracts. That's all we need to input into that, because the customer contract calls up things like the, the price they expect to pay, the day they want it, the, the, the description of what they want, and, uh, and the story they expect to be produced alongside it. Um, and then with that contract, it's assigned to somebody who can tell whether that's been done profitably. Yeah. So it's, it's not really, there's very little what I would call um, interventions in our system. We're not, we spent most of the time in the end removing huge chunks of our system that was prescribing activity. And we said instead, look, you, know, you adults are capable of choreographing yourself in terms of the activities. What we need you to do is to cover these four measures, these four, and, and the legal part of control is legal requirements as well, like health and safety, like I said, and, and um, various other mandated things. And after that, we figured, look, we're covering all the bases. So I don't want you to get the impression we started off with a philosophical view of where we should end up. We, step by step by step, we were doing a very organized and controlled system. But at the same time, we were removing the mechanistic prescribed operations and giving that to the hands and the brains of the people who were doing the work, but saying around that, must be a firm corral of legal boundaries that they mustn't cross. You know, like the, the European Working Hours Directive. You know, it's no good if people are, you know, to get extra productivity because they're just working long, long, long hours. Um, it's no good if you constrain the production process mechanistically so that the only way they can increase their output is by working harder and faster. You know, like a hamster running, it's, it, it's not, it's, I always look for lazy people. That's all, people, creative people who are lazy are great. 
they always say, we don't have to do that. We can just do that. We can put this machine on the end of that machine. So we've got one big machine. And when it comes out, the unit's finished. Why don't we do that? There wouldn't be any, you know, carrying stuff around. And, and it hurts my back. And, and you think, well, it's brilliant. Yeah, let's do that. As time went on, we basically then would give them, give them, um, that's completely the wrong way around to describe it that way nowadays. But at the time, we gave them 20% of the profits they were generating to take home as a bonus. Plus also, we'd give them 20% of their profits, further 20% of the profits that they'd have as an investment pot. So that if, made, if they made 10 grand, they'd end up with two grand in, a, in, a, in an investment pot that they could use for changing machines and getting training and buying stock and whatever they thought was going to improve it improve their work so everyone then had a, a, a fund if you like that they that was ring fenced for them that they earned previously as a profit that they could then invest in making their life easier right so the, so you, the whole sorry yeah no so i'm just i'm just sort of summarizing in my own head so, so you've created these cells you, you these 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 new experiences so you give them purchasing they purchase their own materials yeah you give them uh responsibility what else have you mentioned there for uh yeah what what were some of the other examples that you put started putting into these cells um, okay so as much as possible bit by bit by bit i just want to go back to Chiano. he the euphemism was uh co-located multifunctional teams that's what the cells were in Chiano's original lean book co-located multifunctional teams and of course that's turned into, well, not only do they do one part of the process, they do another part. But no, originally that was order processing, that was inspection, that was quality control, that was delivery, packaging, the whole lot. So first of all, uh, as an example, we would put at the end of our little, in the, in the little cell, they'd have a packaging area, and then they'd dispatch the goods and then do delivery notes, rather than giving it to somebody else to do that. Right. Um, we would then include um, quoting and internal order processing. So at the same time as we were condensing this into the cells and really giving the cell teams more bureaucratic and administrative duties and introducing some software to help them with that, we were also able to get rid of our permanent staff who had been doing that. Now that had a profound impact on productivity. Because half of our costs, half of our costs were non-productive labor. So about 30% of our people were non-productive. Managers and purchasing and people like that. Inspectors and stuff. Storemen, you name it. So that number quickly, yeah. So probably 10 people in our organization weren't directly productive people. But it was worse than that because they had, they, as managers and, and inspectors, they were paid a bit more than the productive staff. So they were more than 30% of the wage bill. Okay. And more than that, they had computers, they had some had offices, and they drank tea and coffee. And so you, you know, if they, the, the reality was, in terms of our whole labour costs, they're, they're approaching 50% of our labour costs 
because they were there. And as we decentralized and we got rid of um, our fixed administrative, we tried to integrate them as much as possible, but there's a bunch of them who'd say, well, it feels like a demotion, even though I'm not losing any money, but having to work in a cell. Which which would stress me because you know as a designer, I'm not head of I'm not head of purchasing anymore. I'm just the purchasing yeah. guy in the in the mini company, right? And if, that would frustrate me a little bit because as a design engineer, I'd be working on the production floor, sorting out problems and introducing new products and and helping out. And for me, that's part of the fun of work. Ah, yes, but you but you but you have high status because you're the co-owner. So you, you don't. Actually, yeah, so yeah. you don't have any loss of status by doing that, but but that yeah. purchasing guy would, right? And you talk yeah. about a social institution, we're Bingo. defined by our status, right? Bingo. And that's that's why it's better to look at it as a social institution than a machine. Because the machine, the cogs in the machine don't care where they're put. People do. Yeah. And I'm not saying that businesses aren't machines. I'm just saying that it's not very helpful looking at them like you'll make assumptions which are just they won't work on the ground look at them as social institutions it's a far better pair of glasses to view things through because you'll find your answers come more readily and they work right treat people yeah. like machines they tend to switch off their 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 creative and imaginative input right but and the other thing i think i'm hearing is it's it's treat them as people but as a principle when you're thinking about organizing them, think about this idea of co-located multidisciplinary teams. Was that yeah. in the back of your mind? So that, 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 to, that, to some extent, was that guiding these experiments? Do you know, it was. I mean, look, as engineers, we're used to reading specifications and documents for a product. And you read Tai Chi's book, and it is a bit of a techie book. And there'd be this, this phrase, co-located multifunctional team. Well, what's it actually mean? And you start with, well, that's the, the, they've got a couple of machines in a row. And then the more you read the book, you realise now they put all sorts of administrative and bureaucratic functions, including sales at some, in some cells, in some examples you gave, in the cell itself. And you realise, no, these are many businesses. And then you start to realise that the benefit of the mini business is that the people doing the work have a very profound connection with the activities they do and the benefits they supply, provide to their customer. They're not just doing some random process in a production line. They're actually taking raw materials, like the satisfaction you get when you cook a meal, take raw ingredients, you put them together, you create something for somebody and then you enjoy it. And when you have a co-located team, it's clear what you're doing and you get the sense of achievement out of the, the finished project that comes at the end of it. You're not just mindlessly doing some repetitive process which requires your manual dexterity but no brain input whatsoever. Because you can't change in that scenario of that production line, you can't change what you do because of its impacts on everybody else. Whereas when you're a co-located team, you can coordinate and choreograph your change 
so that problem at the end can be circumvented at the beginning of your little production team. So we found that the only way to progress is be able to have this connection, but also at the same time, it gave people self-esteem and self-confidence from the very nature of being connected to the outcome rather than just their little process. Yeah, Does that, that makes some sense? It makes complete sense to me, and it reminds me. So I don't know if you're aware of um, Handel's Banken. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the, the Swedish great... Yeah, Jost. What's his name? Philander. Yes, Jost Philander. Jost de Block. No, 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 from not from Bertsog, no. No, 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 no. Um, yeah. The, the, the Handel's Banken Way is a book. Ah, okay. I didn't. I haven't read the book. But. Yeah, excellent book. Read it. Really but what, what strikes me is, you know, first of all, the similarities with what you're describing, of course, you know, play out in their bank and, and their um, their individual branches are very much set up as mini businesses from how I understand it. But also this lack of, because I remember asking, because I had the guy who's sort of head of external relations on, on the show and he's, he's uh, I said, you know, what, what's the purpose of, you know, and they don't really go in for like having a big sort of purpose statement that they communicate to the whole staff. And it just as you're talking now, it, it to some extent, I think this this current sort of fad about having this really strong purpose is sort of a, a response to the symptom of the, the problem of people not feeling like they're meaningfully engaged in their work. So, like, well, let's give them a purpose. <laughs> but if they're in, you know, in the thick of it, in a sort of mini enterprise type setup, they're automatically engaged in meaningful work, right? You don't have to sort of lay on any other purpose on top. Am, am I right there? I think you're right. I'm glad you said that because I'm, I'm sure you're right. And purpose is a huge issue. I personally don't believe you can give somebody a purpose. That's like saying, oh, do you know what? You need a wife. I'm going to give you a wife. Here you are. I've got a set of wives over here. I've chosen one for you. Actually, she's a generic wife. It'll just suit everybody. It just doesn't work like that, does it? You get to choose your own. Mm. So I don't think it's very easy to give people a corporate purpose and have them buy into it like it's meaningful, touches them in a, in, in a valuable way. I think ultimately, people come along to work with a purpose of their own. And you've got to have your social institution in such a way that you can allow them to express their purpose there. And in an aggregate, the purposes combined show up as, a, as an emergent property of the, of the purpose of the business, and it's aligned with the requirements of the customers. Now, there's a bit of a caveat in that, and that if you choose rubbish customers, then people are very constrained in terms of what purpose that they can bring to their work. So you have to be able to give that sales function into the sale so that if the people in the cell actually have a common purpose to be, to do, I don't know, some a, a more environmental product, that they can go out and go to shows and exhibitions and, and work into a supply chain that that's, deals with that. So they can express their purpose by looking for new customers, which are more aligned with what they want to do. So you have to give them some controls, a steering wheel, if you like, so that their cell can do what the what the team in it want to do, want to express how they want to express themselves. That makes sense. Yeah, it do, it does make sense. If you don't do that, 
and you're stuck with, you know, I don't know, making atom bombs, it, the people whose purpose is not to make atom bombs are going to find it, well, I can't work here, can I? It is important. They have, to create, they, have to, they have to create their own market. They have to be able to create their own market. They do. And look, they get, they get what they're given initially to start with. But then given the fact they've got controls over where they sell and what skills they've got and, and in what supply chains they penetrate, they can go, look, we've diversified enormously into all sorts of different areas because people say, well, yeah, I like this. I'm going to give that a go. And if it's successful, it's fine. I don't, I don't mind what they do as long as, as, long as it, it's fulfilling something in them. And they do much better if it's their idea and they, and they want it's something that's important to them, resonates with them, then they put a lot more creative effort into making it a success. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's great as far as I'm concerned. It, why wouldn't you do it? It's my question. Why do you say narrowly, well, you know, burgers and fries is what we do. So don't anybody mention salad, otherwise you're out. You think, well, you know, some people like salad. Don't say that. You're not part of the team if you say that. Do you know, to me, it's just very constraining. But I do understand the problem of intending quality. So you're good at, you're good at burgers and fries. You've got machines. And then somebody mentioned salad. Well, who knows how to cook then? So in the, obviously the... Um, this idea of mechanizing, this idea of determinism and reductionism is all about trying to make consistent quality. And that's important to brands. And we said, look, let's do measures to hold the professionalism together, but then allow people then to, to, to explore all sorts of different alternatives in that professional way. Yeah. It's almost like we have this default thinking that the way to achieve quality is consistency. And it seems to me in business, to you sort of fetishize this idea of consistency. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it is. Um, you, you have to really control your inputs to get anything consistent. Otherwise, you get various inputs. And then you have to adapt your production processes so that you get a consistent output. Do you, do you see what I mean? And that now means to say you have to have a lot of change going on inside to adapt to, the, you know, like when you're cooking. Oh, I haven't got any butter. I'll use, I'll use peanut butter. That'll be the same. And look, you're going to have to change stuff, aren't you, to get anything nice at the end. But that doesn't say you can't. Mm. And if you've got great people, they say, do you know, I can make this out of peanut butter. Yeah, well, so it's, 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 and it's worth twice as much. Yeah, no, 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 I get that. But what I'm wondering is, is as you're going through this process, it seems like not only are you sort of moving towards this, this North Star, to use the lexicon, of, of multi-functional co-located teams, you're, you're also sort of unpicking your own sort of preconditioned views of how business should be done, right? You're, you're, un, you're undoing your own conditioning. Yeah. Um, and the, an assumption that it's better to have things centralized and a consistent process, and that's how it should be done. Is that, am I right with that? It, oh, definitely. Finding yourself doing that, yeah. Not, and not only those simple things, but some really dearly held assumptions that I had. 
So one of my, Andrew takes them again all the time. About so I had this assumption that, that people are all basically the same. And that you can get the best out of people by treating them really well. And time and time again, I've, that's been completely undermined. I, I now think people are completely different. Everyone's different. You're different to me. You know, I'm never going to be a basketball player. Um, and the reality is, I think now, that people can be the best that, they're, the best that they can be with their talents and, 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 and skills and their anxieties and insecurities and wrapped up. They're quite a unique little, little ball, like a fingerprint. You know, they're unique. And your job is to really say, look, this is what I've got to offer in terms of this is what we do. And you come along, and if you're one of those people whose uniqueness fits well enough, then you'll have a great place in this organization. Well, that, what that means is, in our system, we allow people to bring much more of themselves and much more of the way their uniqueness into work. So rather than everybody being like a clone or a robot or the same, you meet different people in our organization, they're quite different. So some of them will emphasize design because they're fundamentally imaginative and they, they want to express that more in their work. They'll tend to look for jobs which are not so repetitive because they get very, they get bored easily and they want to do stuff that's, that's, that's novel and new all the time and be creative. And yet under the same set of rules, you've got somebody else who's, who's much more like the security and comfort of repetitive work and just likes to be creative. So I, I, I do this and I'm going to improve it again tomorrow, make it better, make it easier. And they've got a different set of skills because they're a different person. So there's this great law called Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a systems theories rule that basically says you must have enough variance in your organisation to be able to react to the... the change is being imposed on you from outside. So if there's a range of change, it's rainy today or sunny today, you must have enough different things to wear so that when you go out, you don't get hot or you don't get wet. So you have to have enough variance within. So in our system, that means people. Our systems, our social institution must be full of people who are different enough that as change comes into our organisation, we always have somebody who's doing the right sort of thing for that new circumstance. Everyone else just copies it. They say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we should do today. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. So when we had, you know, we're experiencing this COVID thing at the moment. And each person has come along and said, well, for me, this is what I want to do to reduce my COVID risk. So we've got um, uh, one of the people who works nights. They don't want to be in a crowd of people. They want to isolate themselves. They're a bit more anxious about it. They've got look, newborn children as well. So this is, that's, that's their choice. They come and work at night. 
Now, that's not a conclusion of the, the way other people want to behave, but that still fits within a really wide control context that we've got, the corral, which just says you have to do everything legally. In terms of how you operate on the day-to-day level, it's up to you. You yeah. bring your creativity and imagination to, to how you want to solve the problems that you experience. Yeah. So we well, don't... Yeah, I was going to say, so isn't it, the corral is, you've got to work legally, yeah. and you've got to publish against these, these prescribed measures. Those are the, yeah. basically the two rules, right? Yeah. 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 Now, and that's exactly the same as uh, handles banking. Yeah. There's, you know, strict rules and measures they've got to maintain. In terms of how they interact with their clients, it's up to them. It's very, they bring themselves to that job. Yeah. The only difference is with handles banking is their co-located team is a branch. Whereas our co-located team is a much smaller cell. Well, and this is the question. So am I right that ultimately this cell got down to individuals yes i mean yeah. that is extraordinary right well we had it we had issues so the, so the issue was teams teams work really well if people can choose what team they're in but once teams are uh, uh, prescribed so, you know, you and me are going to be on the basketball team, Richard. You go, all oh, right. I mean, you know, you're stuck with me. You go, all oh, right, yeah. Oh, the hair that's, modeling team. Yeah, that's the hair modeling team. That's right. And, uh, and it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some wind out of your sails. Let's put it that way. You're not going to be leaping out of bed in the morning thinking, oh, we're going to go through the hair modeling today. That's going to be brilliant, isn't it? I wonder what style Julian <laughs> Yeah, what's, what's he going to do today? Yeah, look, I've curled it. You have to be really close, though, to really see the curl. Um, yeah, so once you come to that problem, of, well, how do you get people to choose their own teams in work? Because the organisation signed up to a contract or the seller signed up to a contract and you might be stuck with hair modelling. And it might not be what you want to do. And this particular contract might require you to do something a bit different, which means gaining a new skill. And again, do you want to feel forced into that? You want to feel at the moment where you sign the contract with the customer, yeah, it's part of the negotiation, yeah, I'm choosing to do this. This is my voluntary choice to embark upon this journey with this customer. You don't get prescribed. So we really struggled with having anybody in the cell who's in charge of gaining new work because they're making commitments on everybody else's behalf. And then we looked at the wider world, we looked at supply chains and said, yeah, supply chains don't do that, do they? They just bid for work. And they find a place that they're comfortable in fitting in that supply chain. So again, a bit of an experiment was could we create a cell out of individual people who were individual cells? Could we make, a, could we make an outcome product using a supply chain rather than just a work team? 
who were forced to work together. And when we did this, we found people stopped working with people they had years of issues with and would choose to work with other people. And some people wanted to work complementary people, some people wanted to work with people who were like them. Again, that was a purely personal issue. They gave them a lot more freedom um, and a lot more opportunity to move around the organisation, finding different things to do, which is more aligned with their own personal purpose. But it, it really did force them an issue of, we were starting to ask people, well, what is it you want? What do you want from your work? And, and you know, everybody kind of struggled with that question initially because it's, you don't get asked that at work, do you? I mean, even Andrew struggled with that. I want to increase shareholder value, he said. Well, and after a few years of working on it, he said, no, I, I'm, he became much more clear of what he wanted as an individual, what his purpose was, what he wanted his life work to be, rather than the vocabulary he'd been taught. In his previous in his previous work mm. um, so yes we got down to individuals in cells but that is not it's to say that individuals in cells rather than as cells individuals as cells so they do as much of the all the administrative work including hr and everything for themselves as if they were the owner of a, a one-person business but they don't exist in isolation the systems we have in place are just designed for them to seamlessly bond together in, in teams um, and it, it, it overcame another problem we had is, is as a social institution hierarchies form very quickly and hierarchies aren't a terribly bad, terribly bad thing but our challenge was to stop them kind of concreting in place as a de facto position. And this supply chain issue really solved that. So we have very fluid hierarchies, always based on competence. So they do one contract and one person was in charge because there was kind of a lead on that team. Because that's where their skills lay. And then do another contract, which was subtly different, perhaps had more design input, and then another person would be the lead. It was a subordinate in the other team. And the, these things would go on simultaneously in a wider array of work that we had going on simultaneously. Um, so yes, we do have hierarchies and they're competency-based and they're voluntary and they're very fluid. So they're morphing all the time. So we get some new person starts work. And of course, they come in with a whole background of skills. And it turns out they're a lead on something. Well, that, that's normal, isn't it? You know, it, they should be leading the thing that they know most about. Yeah. And yeah. if somebody comes in with a new set of skills, people are keen to be subordinates because they quickly learn. They're trying to increase their portfolio of skills. And the way to do that is work with somebody who's more skilled. Yeah. Um, and this got us to a much more dynamic, much more fluid hierarchy, um, which is not fixed at all. There's simultaneously all sorts of things going on at once. And what, and what so a contract will come in and, and the individual sort of companies, as people as companies, will sort of divvy up the revenue from that con contract between themselves and 
charge cross charge each other for their services is, is it is it like that i mean i'm just trying to get my head around that as it actually works yeah, it's great isn't it um so it's much more like shops in the high street so the individual will land a contract they might even land it in collaboration with others because some of our contracts are huge so they'll require require several people to be negotiating through the bidding process and then when they land it, somebody will have the contract in their name. And just like in the supply chain, they'll choose what they subcontract out to other people. Now, if they've landed it together, they may say, well, we've already, we've already kind of divvied that up in our head, how it's going to be divided. But in most cases, those smaller contracts, the person will do everything required to complete the contract. And he may only subcontract a few little bits and pieces, specialist bits and pieces throughout the team, just as you would in a supply chain. Yeah, you know the farmer grows wheat. Fantastic. He doesn't make the tractor. Yeah, yeah, he subcontracts that, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, So that seems to be just to just to recap, summarise as we go through this. We've got this principles of the co-located multifunctional team, but then there's also this principle of a fractality. Is that a word or 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 being inspired by um, the fractal nature of our world? And you're asking yourself, well, how does this work? If we zoom out, right? And in yes. this case, it was, you know, well, companies work together in supply chains. And so how would that apply? That pattern that we recognize out there, how would that apply in here? That was something you were also going to, was it? Yeah, because I should I should I suppose Rich, I should emphasize the fact that in this process we were trying not to introduce some new thing. We didn't want a new set of vocabulary, we didn't want a new operating principle that we'd come up with from Andrew and I. We were trying to step away and have it run like the rest of the world and not be, this is how our family is, but have it be, this is how the world is and we're teaching you how to be in that world. I mean, one of the biggest anxieties we had was people would leave and start their own businesses because it's like an entrepreneur school, isn't it? They learn everything they need to do from the financial accounting investment, equipment, purchasing, the tax, everything they learn. So you think, well, they, they just leave, leave and do it for themselves, wouldn't they? And that was, that was our big concern. We thought there was no hope, really. But again, we carried on the experiment. We haven't had anybody really to start their business. Um, certainly not in the same area. Um, we've had people leave to become taxi drivers and stuff like that, um, but not competing because the the opportunities within the business are pretty much the same as your opportunities outside and you get to play with the you get to be steward of a large amount of capital in our organization so there's it's a it's a better game to play straight away do you see what i mean yeah and just remind me again of the of the cuts that people get there's a percent the, the percentages aren't there Okay, so we divide things into five. Twenty uh, percent divide the profit into five. So twenty percent goes as a bonus, and that's after their wages. So they've they've got a good wage in our industry, and on top of that, they get a twenty percent bonus, twenty percent of their profits they generate. Now, people can double their wages um, using that formula. So it's a it's a big incentive. 
you also get 20% of the profit they generate that goes into an investment pot for advertising and recruitment and, and stocks and training and innovate, anything that they think they can invest in or give them a return in the future. Um, 20% goes to taxmen, corporation tax. Uh, 20% goes into a company-wide investment pot, and that's really for stuff like telephone systems and I hesitate to say website, but let's say website. But anything which is part of the communal infrastructure comes out of yeah. that pot. Um, and finally, 20% goes to Andrew and I, which we divide between us. So, uh, yeah. That's our so investment yeah. return. So that might be the only thing, because all of that, they'd have pretty much have to pay out themselves, That's right. individual yeah. entrepreneurs. Yeah. So really, they're paying a 20% tax to you and Andrew to be part yeah. of the club, basically, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And it's a bit they, like a franchise in a sense, right? You know, it is in some ways, it is. Um, our job is just making that transparent, open, and as and a good social contract between us all. And, you know, we've had enormous improvements in all sorts of areas because we've got all these brains in our organisation working on the puzzle of the organisation all the time. So at some point we said, well, now we've done the legal stuff, Andrew and I stepped out of the organisation and it started functioning as a, in a feedback loop on itself. They then start talking about what improvements and changes they can make to the, to the systems and operational systems. Mm. Um, and then they go through this loop of testing it and trying and see if it works or it doesn't work. And so we've tried to leave it then as a, a self-navigating system rather than Andrew and I working. All we do is monitor it. All we do is look at it. So we keep up to date to see that what we've done isn't going wrong. But we've had so many issues. I mean, COVID is, a, is the most recent one. But we had an issue, oh, 2007 or something, where the factory next door to ours caught fire. And it was an arson attack in a factory next door. And um, they'd switched off their fire alarm. And the smoke seeped into our factory and set our fire alarm off. So the fire brigade arrived and smashed our windows and poured water into our building because that's, that's where they had the call. So that did, like a million, yeah, that did like a million pounds worth of damage. And that chaos, that crisis, was, was resolved by the team because in all their best interest to get it back up and running and get it sorted. Yeah. And I suppose I'm trying to emphasise the fact that this not seeing the organization's machine provides you with the opportunity to have a far more robust and resilient organization because of its adaptability. It can be thrown a curveball, it can be thrown a surprising event, and then everybody, because they, they're very clear what, what, what's best for them, they will do what's required creatively and imaginatively to sort that out. And this is, this is such an important point, I think, because for, for, for somebody as I am, who's been engaged a lot with the agile community, which is, of course, heavily informed by Lean, uh, and we come with our tools. Yeah. 
and you've really done it like you've really achieved business agility which is the current yeah fad right uh and you've done it not through application of tools but really a fundamental redesign of the business yeah and i suppose i start off with that it's like cooking isn't it you you watch some expert chef on the telly and you see he's got that frying pan there he's frying and stuff and he's like oh i've got a frying pan just like i mean it's just like that isn't it? it's got that red dot in the middle and everything yeah you know? and then he's he's using onions well, I've seen them down the supermarket. I can get those. But you know, don't you, that what he's cooking won't be the same when you cook it. And so we quickly took our focus off the equipment and the, system, and the systems and more upon the person doing the work. And I've come back to this fact that people are very different. They're often, in the way we organise business, it's like everyone's the same. This is how I used to think. Everyone's the same, so... They're equally suitable for any position if you divide the job up into a small enough chunk that's straightforward and easy. You know, that's a whole division of labor thing. But it turns out that's just not the case. Everyone's different. Like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, they're all different. And unless you get people in exactly the right place in the organization that suits them perfectly, what you're going to end up with is a lot of discord a lot of disengaged people. And that's actually what we see. Most workplaces aren't very harmonious. But if you give them a much wider remit and the ability to shape that, their work so that it reflects more of themselves in it and express themselves, then they bring a lot more of themselves to their work. They get a lot more self-esteem and self-confidence. In our case, they get a lot more pay, three times the pay huge factor um, and secondly thirdly they get to choose the direction because another thing you know I thought people were people and they were like they were but what I've learned is that people change so what happens is they 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 come to a job and they really want to fit in for a little while so they'll tend to show themselves to be more adaptable and more more willing and after six months or so, they start to settle down into, yeah, well, I've, I've got the hang of this now. And then they're not so willing. And they're not so willing because they want to shape it now in, in more the direction that they want to express themselves in it rather than just, you know, a willing servant. And after a little while, they get bored of that. And then they say, yeah, but I want something completely different now. I want, I want to do work abroad. I want to. And so you say, well, Advertise in the States, go advertise in Europe. Because you'll get work over there, you get do trips and stuff, and that's what you want, go and do that. You know, create a website, focus on some supply chain or some customer you want to be involved with and, and, and pursue it. And if you don't know how, ask Bob over there, because he's done that all the time. And pretty quickly, your working world becomes the environment you want it to be. Just like your home life is. Your home life is the way you want it to be, constrained only by what you can afford. Yeah. So if you've got pipe paint, you can choose any colour. Do you know what I mean? It's just Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think I think you are accurate. And I said I was when I emailed you before we came on the show, that I was sort of skeptical when I first read this line, the first truly self-leading organization. But the way you've described it 
does suggest to me you might well be the very first organization in the world who's gone this far. Because when I think about Valve, for example, I don't know if you're aware in the States, a gaming company where they have an extraordinary level of latitude for an individual when they join yeah. Valve. They're basically, okay, go join a team, <laughs> find, find a place in this organization. But I don't think they've taken it to the extent, at least not the way they describe it, where they, the, the, so they have this ex- extraordinary latitude where they sort of add value in the organization, but they're not, they're not, they're not sort of conceived as a mini company within it, right? So I, I think that's where you might be even further in terms of a, a push in this direction. There's a certain degree of literary license because obviously every one-man business is a self-leading organisation. Well, yes, that's true. And every network of one-man, one-person business, which is in a supply chain, is a collective of self-leading organisations. And as a whole, there's, an, there's, a, there's a, an emergent purpose that comes out of that little supply chain. Not just the product, but also you know, the whole distribution of... of that comes in there. So this is why I regard it as a, it's a fractal nature. If you look at one-man organizations, they really look like our organization does. It's just that we all have, we have ours in, a, in one building under, under a collective umbrella of a corporation. But we yeah. divide them up as one-person businesses. And they, they exist out there, but not so much in traditional, especially in um, paternalistic organizations. Paternal or maternalistic organizations, you know, some organizations are run with a maternal head and some are run uh, with a paternal head. And they often have different, quite different flavors. Um, but nevertheless, it's either mum or dad who's saying how things should be. Yeah. Um, but it's quite robbing as, you know, if you've got kids who are teenagers, you know, it's quite robbing to try, to try to be prescriptive towards them, and they rebel, and understandably. Well, yeah, that's right. But I think that mo- mo- most of, m- most people in the workforce find a way to accommodate it, right? They find a way to comply and live their lives. But it also, so, there's a guy, a guy called Pim de Mont... Hold a minute, but Richard, there's so much disengagement in the workplace. Well, no, I agree. I, they do it in a disengaged way. Yeah. But they, they find a way to, to get through the day, right? And, uh, yeah, and that's it's a bit of a... We're talking about adaptive, a, right? We are adaptive. We, yeah. we, we, can, we can sort of adapt to a somewhat miserable existence <laughs> quite, quite, in some ways quite word? easily. What's the word they used? They settled. They settled, yeah. Yeah, they settled for it. Well, it's in our evolutionary history, to, presumably, to be able to do that. If we all just gave up the ghost every time we found ourselves in a sort of <laughs> uncomfortable, miserable setting, you know, there probably yeah. be many of us left, right? And I suppose, uh, um, so um, my, I think the worst part of that is if the organisation robs them of the hope of progress. Mm. And that's what we're suffering enormously at the moment, I think, in the wider world, especially in the Western world, is we don't perceive much progress available to us in, in, in our workplace. You know, so many organisations are stagnating, full of people who are just waiting for retirement. Yeah, and because it because that kind of environment is 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 really suits somebody who's got a lot of political skill and are really ambitious for more power and authority, then they're great, right? Because there is opportunity to progress if you if you're equipped in that way and you desire more power and authority. But for sort of it's everyone not, else, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not so exciting, right? They get the rough end of the stick, don't they? 
But they, the problem with that is that that's quite an internal inward facing opportunity. And it's not serving customers. It's not serving the wider world. It's just rather Machiavellian maneuvering within the organization itself. And, and it's quite a distraction from the purpose of from your own purpose. Yeah. Yeah. From your own purpose. Right. You sort of, yeah, you sort of put your, your sort of purposeful effort, I suppose, into, into that direction, or at least some do. Um, and, right. but, but, but we mustn't forget the sort of punchline here and what you ultimately achieved. So 500%. So just, just describe exactly what that sort of meant in terms of the organization. Um, okay. So what it meant was, Slowly but surely, we, as we translated our centralized fun functions into the cells, we either integrated or lost the people who were, who were in charge of those functions, like purchasing manager and people like that. Um, and eventually, we came down to a, a very core team, and we had to make that decision. Sorry, we ended up with the cells large functional cells, and, a, and the remnants of our core team, who were the most sticky ones in the, at the, the last parts of our centralized functions to be disbanded. And they were really tricky things to get rid of because they were, they were like a salesman, for example, who did the work for the whole organization. It's very difficult to, to integrate that with a load of people who have no experience in sales. So we then, the last part of our process was to get decentralized that final team. And that was, a, that was a huge effort and required probably another half of those legal framework to be put into the cell. It's a massive amount of work we had to do just to get rid of those last few. And that was our goal, was to decentralize in that final way. But it, what happens is our productivity doubled at that point. And it wasn't just the loss of those people that made such an impact. It was also the solution, which having integrated those skills, those new solutions which were possible, now you had, in the cell, you had more control over, for example, um, sales. So when you are in control of sales, you go and sell stuff that you can do. Whereas a centralized salesman sold what he thought he could do. And there are things he thought he could do which you weren't very good at, and things you could definitely do which he didn't even know about. But when you go and do the sale, you're much more able to negotiate something which is satisfying, and you can definitely do it. And the bits you can't do, you clearly know they're within your grasp. And that made a massive difference. You know, people were selling what they could make. They were selling what they could design. They were selling what they could, they could procure. They knew what their supply chain could do. They were solving problems for customers in ways that they knew that they could, they could manufacture. You know, they had that capability. They wouldn't suggest something they couldn't do. Um, so it wasn't just the fact that we integrated things like sales. It was the fact that we were able to 
provide them a new lever to, to, to be more effective by having that sales. So there's a, there's a double benefit. And we were really interested in, in losing the, the, the single functional like cornerstone. What's the, the, the keystone that the salesman has become? Um, because they were driving so much the direction of the business at odds with what the sales wanted. So integrating them was um, integrating that function. We were trying to get rid of that keystone. And at the same time, we didn't anticipate what that would open up for the sales. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so for, us, for us, it was that eventually we reduced that down, down, down until eventually we had no centralized functions, no fixed yeah. centralized functions. Right. Right. And I, I think what I'm seeing hearing here, it wasn't just so much that you were eliminating this sort of communication overhead of having a centralized salesperson. What got sold was different. And it was more aligned with the skills and the motivations of those individuals. Yeah. I'm smiling because it's in hindsight, yes. At the time we were just trying to solve this one communication problem, you know, it was a bottleneck and and it wasn't doing a great job. And it was an additional cost. Um, so it, 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 it's great in hindsight to say, oh, yeah, we figured all that out. And it was a, that was a master plan. But in reality, we were surprised at how well it went. Um, and just on a practical level, presumably it would have been quite difficult to ask of your salesperson to go train all these other salespeople to then do him or her out of a job. Yes, of course. Um, and we didn't, we started introducing everybody to internal sales, for example. So the salesman was no longer involved in any of the um, internal processing of sales work. So the sale would then take off, take on all the responsibilities around a repeat sale. The customer brings that wants another one. Um, and if it wasn't new and different, then it could reside in the cell. And then after that, we looked at things like uh, projects which required design effort. And then we'd have the designers, and the design people for the cell, going with the salesman. Until eventually they were confident enough to do the, the sales work, contract negotiations, along with their design. Just at a practical level, because for, for anybody listening out there who might be in a position where they can start to apply some of these principles that are thinking about taking steps in this direction, what yeah, how, how did you manage that, right? Because presumably that, that problem repeated, right? First with purchasing, then with finance, then with HR, then with sales. Like each time you must have faced something like this. Yes. Well, we tend to take the path of least resistance. So whenever there was a, a bottleneck or a problem that sales were getting frustrated about, we then introduced them to those extra skills. So we, we partner with somebody. So... Purchasing is a classic example. Pretty quickly, the cell members were saying, we can't deliver better. We can't work more efficiently unless we have all the stuff we need to make stuff work. And at the moment, things, uh, as it was, things were going to this long, protracted process of, of, of procurement. And they said, look, if we were in charge of that, it would would improve the performance and the efficiency and effectiveness of the cell. 
So we'd take the path of least resistance and say, well, okay, seeing as you want to do it, then here you go. This is the system we'll put in place. We had to figure that out because each system purchasing, for example, there's uh, issues with, with, with fiduciary responsibility around that, which is the, what the purchasing guy is taking on. But you don't, that's not clear how to decant that into an individual employee. So we had to work out all those checks and balances that, that meant to say people weren't buying you know, 10 years worth of stock because it suited them, because it was slightly cheaper, but, but had no reference to, the, to the, the capital that was being, being tied up or even the space that was getting tied up. Um, so again, as you introduce, as you decant these systems, it, it's not a terribly simple process. It's something you've got to think about. You know, if you're purchasing, what's the adage? If you're buying something with somebody else's money for somebody else, you don't care about the quality or the price. If you're buying something for somebody else, but you're paying for it, you care about the price, but not so much the quality. If you're buying something for yourself, with somebody else's money, well, money is no object, but quality is critical. And if you buy someone with your own money for yourself, the value is the most important thing. So it was only when we could get to that point where people were buying stuff for themselves, which is going to impact their, their um, sell accounts at the end of the day, were they thinking, okay, I want the best value. Right. Yeah, you can see that applies to sales as well. Only when they're selling for themselves, do they Brilliant. care? Can, can we deliver this? Yeah. <laughs> is there and, profit and, in it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and is it? It's, a, it's easy. Yeah, that's the problem. They, we'd have, in our old system, people would throw one problem into the next function and then they'd throw a problem, in, perhaps two problems into the next function and on it would go until the poor person at the end of it just had an impossible job to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then course they disengage just because it's not in their job it's not within the boundaries of their job to solve that problem it happened up upstream but as we decentralize the opportunities to solve problems in where they were coming from like the root cause of the problem became available and people are smart they just say well yeah don't ever do that again and you Mm. you reduce the problem here by fixing a problem over here. And what we found then is our problems quickly started to move around the organization. So a, problem, a persistent problem in production turned out to be a persistent problem in design, which when that was fixed, production problem went away. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, so, no, no, that does make sense. Yeah. And, it's a bit and like before, it. it, it yeah, in a body, in your body, right? Your, your foot hurts, but it turns out it's because you've, you know, you've got a problem in your lower back, or yeah, yeah, that's so a third got, pain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or the worst case is, of course, you've got foot something wrong with your foot. You've got a blister on your toe. Then after a few hours, you get a hip pain because you're walking. Pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's no way the hip can sort that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a really interesting thing is that the solutions to many of our problems lay far away from the place where the symptoms were occurring. And as we decentralized and we aggregated and formed around one person, they were solving problems in, in quite 
you know, different ways and ways that they were comfortable and confident in. Yeah. Well, well, again, we're talking about fractal. It's, it's sort of the invisible, it's almost the invisible hand, right? You know, it's, we set up economies in this way because they've over time proved to be more effective, you know, so why not? Yeah. Why aren't we setting up companies in a similar way and sort of allow, allow the market to solve, uh, solve the problems? Yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical about that term because ultimately it's just people's creativity and imagination, isn't it? So there's not some invisible thing that does... There is no invisible that. hand, you're right. It's All it really is is the... Is the so it's, but it's as if there were one, right? Yeah, exactly. But it is the engagement of people using their creativity and imagination to resolve the problems that confront them, the difficulties mm. that confront them. Whilst, you know, and hopefully it's not... It's not in a cynical and, and, and abusive way that, that, that corrupts a marketplace. Yeah. So that's how. And, and well, that, that's why you've got to have these constraints, right? It's got to be legal. And you've yeah, got to have got... transparency in the system, which allows you to, presumably, the fact that you and uh, Andrew can still have some means to identify bad actors or, or problems in the system. Well, you see, once you go transparent, we don't have to identify the bad actors. Once you go transparent, the team identifies the bad actors. Yeah. Because um, they all know that they don't want to create, undermine the brand values. So if somebody starts to do things which are taking shortcuts and stuff, the others will then say, oh, hold on a minute. You know, in the, this may work for you in the moment, but in the longer term, um, this is bad for all of us. Right. So, you know, we've done as much as we can to not to get involved in anything that, that occurs on the ground. Because, you know, as a social institution, you don't want the dad coming in and saying, oh, you should do it like this. No. Or we would go in and say, look, the law says you've got to do this, so get on with it. And this yeah. is how you do it. And this is, this, is, this is what you do. And this is how we know you've done it, by the way. And that's important for our fiduciary responsibility as directors, but we have to be able to prove that we're monitoring that the legal duties are being satisfied. Yeah. So is health and safety being done? Hugely, I've got a paper trial to prove it, and it's actively monitored in real time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I get it. And what happens if it's not? That data's published, and people say, oh, yeah, but Joe's not doing the health and safety. Mm. That's how come he's got all the spare time. He's going fishing every day. Look, so the idea is to police themselves and not have us as the arbiter of it but actually just reflect it back on them in a transparent way. Yeah, I see that. But you haven't answered my question. So how do you Sorry. deal practically with the, the salesman you've got to fire or, you know, the purchasing manager you've got to get rid of? Um, well, we didn't, we didn't actively fire anybody really in that sense. Um, we always gave people the opportunity to just decentralize into a cell. So the salesman could then work in a cell. Let's say he chose the ones that had the biggest orders, because he felt he could, he could live on the commission of that. Um, but the problem was, in the cell, because they're a multifunctional communicator team, they had all these other duties, which may include actually working on a bench, and then the sales would go, yeah, of course, I can, I can get another sales job doing something else, which I just have to do sales, and you know, I'm happy with that, really, rather than having sales as only part of my goal part of my role um, so we always gave people the opportunity to say that your job's changing um, go into a cell you can still do part of it 
business sales as part of that, business sales or whatever it was, bookkeeping or whatever. Um, but you'll be expected to expand your skill set to include other things, multifunctional. And it was curious, a lot of people didn't want to do that. And what's even more curious, often they didn't even go into their speciality skill. So again, I come back to this social institution thing. There was some loss of status that must have been associated with it to say to themselves, I'd rather go be a taxi driver than I would carry on doing what I was doing centrally in the cell. Do you see what I mean? It was, it, yeah, it was, I do see that. But presumably there wouldn't have been that many because because of the wage increases as well. There wouldn't for most people, it, presumably, it's, it wouldn't be economic, you know, just purely on the finances, to go be a taxi driver. No, and that's why I don't think money is the, is the prime motivator there. Those, the decisions were quite complicated. Mm. Um, they were, I think, it's best reflected as a social institution. There's a lot of social impacts. So, for example, if you're in a very fixed position, in a functional position in a hierarchy, functional, not fixed, but functional position in the hierarchy, and then you, there's a certain opportunity you have to alienate yourselves from your colleagues. Because you're like an inherent part of this machine, you know, an indispensable part of the machine. You have a bad day, you can, you know, you can kick the dog sort of thing. And they, they bring that out at work and just, they're a bit, you know, offhand to people. They should be a little... But there's nothing you can do about it, is it? So, you know, you're stuck with it because you're stuck with me. And I think when then confronted by a, a, a voluntary team that not only had you to volunteer into, but they had to volunteer to have you, then that wasn't always an easy process for people who'd... who'd had not made themselves very um, popular over, previous, over, over the previous years. And we found, you know, there were issues coming out from decades ago, like the Christmas party in 1987. And it was, well, and there'd been this pent up. Which is very familiar for people who've lived, worked for a long time. in the I know, I know. Right. I just, yeah. again, it's assumption I didn't have, but. Yeah, we, we ended up turning it as am, amity. It's like the, the casual friendship people adopt to their face. Yeah, people would have this mm. amity to get along so that the, the organisation moved along. Disengaged though they were, you know, they talked about football for 10 minutes and then they moved on. But below that was a lot of resentment, a lot of upset, interpersonal issues, which hadn't ever been resolved. It was just, they were just papered over in that sense. And what we notice now is that the team is much more friendly. They socialise together. They, they do all sorts of sports and activities together. Because there's, a, there's not just a collegiate um, um, bond, but there's also a friendship bond that grows between them, a genuine one. And what we observed before was, a, in contrast to that, which was an amity, which was just people putting on a face to get along in what you call forced teams and, and covering up resentments and animosities from, from decades before. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I'm also picking up on what you said there about these people in these fixed functions. It's almost like you've, because you might be senior, so there may be one thing, one threat to this way of working is you lose your positional power, your seniority. But also, even if you're not senior, as you've described, you sort of, you've got ownership as this little part of the process, and it's only you. So even if you're nominally low down in the hierarchy, you still have a lot of power, power in a sense, because... If I'm the only person who could, I don't know, put your purchase order into the system, then I've got power. And yeah. if suddenly if it's all voluntary, I'm losing some of that power that I gain just by being a, a sort of centralized cog. Is that right? So one of the one of the ways that people push back against this machine view, because I want to, even though we may view organizations as machines, as money-making machines. And I say it's more powerful to see them as social institutions. They always are social institutions. So people are constantly playing these social games. Um, So it doesn't really matter whether you think they are or not. You're just stuck with it. That's what they are. There's a bunch of people together. It's a social institution. Tough. You think it's a machine, but it's not. Um, Just go and try and change something and you'll find that it's not a machine at all. Um, you know, uh, anyway, but, um, so what was I saying? So the, um, the, the, one of the, one of the ways of gaining security in in this machine is to become indispensable. The only cog that does it. And people choose, we had, uh, years ago, I remember we had an employee who'd always volunteer for the shit job. Whenever, whenever there was a shit, he'd say, yeah, no, I'm, 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 a, I'm your man. And it came to the point when, you know, when there was something difficult to be done, everyone would kind of step back because they knew he, he'd push himself forward. But it was another way of him being indispensable. Because they'd say, oh, we'll get rid of Joe. Oh, yeah. But he's the one who does the shit jobs, isn't he? And if, if we got rid of him, well, well, I might have to do the shit job. So we'll leave, we'll leave Joe alone. Okay, and the, there's a... Um, so indispensability is one of the, the counterplays that adults will do in a, in a very fixed and uh, mechanistic view where everybody's dispensable. Become indispensable. That means you either have to have a skill or an aptitude or a willingness to do something which nobody else wants to do or can do. And sometimes you, that's even smoke and mirrors. You, know, you, you, make, you make tidying up at the end of the day an elaborate process that only you know how to advertise for the stickers. You know, whatever it is, you are the only one who knows the filing system. So you're indispensable. And it's when you do these co-located teams, multifunctional teams, you have to push against that, that, that training people have had for years and years and years, which says that and be indispensable, otherwise you're the first to go when things get tough. Whereas what we've noticed in our organization is when things get tough, they never get tough all over. 
you know, you have one area where there's there's a problem with, oh, I don't know, some 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 customer has a problem with their product and then doesn't want the, the supply. And then you have somebody associated with that contract says, well, I've got nothing to do today. But they're in a supply chain, so they just go and source work elsewhere. And there's always somebody who's got too much work on at the time because their customer's really busy. Because out there in the real world, some other customers picked up you know, the shortfall in the market. Right. So as long as you're diverse enough, you have this opportunity for people to move around the organization. And if they've got enough skills, they fit almost anywhere. So people f- adapt in another way to become secure, right? By becoming multi-skilled, by building yeah. relationships across the network. And yeah. so it's not like uh, security is any less attainable in this style of organization. It's just different means together. That's right. The indispensable nature doesn't satisfy customers, but the adaptable nature does. Yeah, no, no, I can see that. Although having said that right now for you know, in this COVID era, presumably people aren't buying as many airplanes or as many airplane parts. Is it tough for you now? Um, it, it, things have changed, um, but we're quite well diversified. So we haven't actually seen a, a drop up. We've seen drop up in some things and an expansion in other things. So at the moment, after, where are we now? seven or eight months of this um we had a bit of a dip and then we've come out of it again um and of course as things like airplanes brought back into life you know for us doing um, you've probably seen the airplanes parked up on runways mm. in regional airports as they're just stacked up until they've, they've got use but when you bring them out again you have to check check them out and check they'll work okay and when switches switch they they wipe their contacts so when they're used, they work fine. If you don't use them, they corrode. Okay. And then they may have a bit of intermittent contact and then they have to replace the instrument and get it serviced. So we're seeing an uptick in that sort of lack of use sort of maintenance issues as, as airplanes brought back into service and stuff like that. Um, and of course, we have all sorts of other parts of our business as well, that, that, like fishing reels and all sorts of things. Oh, wow. I really are the best fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, that's right. You just, you leave people to do what they're, they're interested in. Yeah, we've probably had more people fishing in the last uh, six yeah. months. So. Exactly. Dusting yeah. off their fishing reels and saying, and I didn't, I didn't realize how expensive fishing reels were and how much maintenance they needed. So what do I know? But again, that's, that's the issue is, you know, what's our purpose as a business? I don't know where the opportunities are. You know, people who are on the ground and talking to customers know what the potential is. If I say, oh, yes, Airbus, you know, we've got to increase our, our sales to Airbus by 15% this year. And they say, well, nobody's flying anywhere. That's a stupid idea, Julian. What are you talking about? Yeah, but they can say, well, I've got this customer, this customer, this customer who, who have good opportunities. I can work on them. And I, it's silly to believe that, that any one person would know exactly what the opportunities are in the whole of the market. Yeah. And really, you just have to have enough, in, enough of a network to see where the opportunities are, where they're going and where they're leaving. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, it's been a fantastic uh, conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, 
I love the book and I've loved the, this conversation even more. Um, and, I, and I think just as the other thing to note here is that you're an investor in this business. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of the time when we talk about unleashing human capital and creativity, there's a, sometimes a sense that this is, you know, at the at the expense almost of the investors. But am I right in saying your your asset has become more valuable? Oh, much more valuable, yes. Much more yes. valuable as a result of this process. So even from the purely from the financial lens, this has been um a you know a, a significantly uh, um, beneficial, beneficial investment beneficial investment. Yeah, I, I I just you know I've I've got to say that this is that's not the only reason. You know, working with you know, creative and autonomous people, it's fantastic. It makes work life so pleasurable when you're around great people. Who are engaged in what they're doing and have got, got dreams and visions and, and, and are exploring and are creative. So it would be great to say, as an investor, yeah, financially separating that side has been has been good. You know, as, as a member of that social institution, it's been fantastic as well. In terms of my the the workload and the duress I felt under, that's completely changed as well. So you know, it's, I mean, it's a joy. Um, in terms of me progressing the things I'm passionate about and interested in, it gives me the opportunity which I didn't have before I was, I was stuck in a design office. So in many ways, it's, it's, it's paid off. And not just for me, but for everybody. And, it, and I just want, it's not just financial, even though the financial gains have been great. Um, you know, our, uh, uh, I, I told you, you know, we had very low wages, so our car park used to look a bit like the, you know, a bit rag bag. And now they're all just like, you know. Del Boy's forecourt. Yeah, that Del Boy's forecourt. And now they're just full of you know, fancy German cars. And that's great, but, but that's, if you ask people why they like working there, it's not that reason. It's the reason that they can come, come and go as they please. They can pursue what they're interested in. They feel in control of their destiny. They can, they can look at the, the threats on their horizon and do something about it long before they get there. They feel accomplished. They feel, I'm putting words into mouth a bit, but what I notice is how much taller they walk. Do you know what I mean? After a little while, they, they come in, they're like the eager servant. And there's a little bit where they, they find, oh, it's a bit of an uphill struggle. And then when they come through that crest and they're profitable and they're, they're in control of what they're doing, you see them walking tall. I mean, I, I say, one of them, we had a, a guest come around the factory. I should just leave you this anecdote. And um, he came around and he was looking at the way things were arranged and were organised. And one of the guys in the shop floor was talking to him about you know, what he was doing, how it worked and, and, and what it meant for him and the difference it made. And you can see this guy, who's a very high-brow um, CEO from a big company. And you can see this chap, his, his view went across, he's obviously deep in thought about what the implications would be and how he could do something. And at which point, the, the chap in our place says, sorry, am I boring you? 
And this CEO's his head snapped back. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, oh, blimey. No, I didn't mean to offend you. But the confidence, you know, when I say is, uh, yeah. uh, people walk towards, you know, they get somebody who, you know, in the old days, people wouldn't even make eye contact, let alone criticize them for, for not paying attention to them when they're talking. It just made me laugh so much. Um, it just was representative of how far they'd come as individuals and they weren't, they, they didn't feel, they don't feel at the bottom of any pile. Yeah, no, no, I can see that. Um, I can imagine that. Well, you're really, now you've got a collection of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, yeah. or at least, six, well, sort of by definition, su- successful entrepreneurs, right? There's still, yeah, still and, and I, so, so that's, that's the culture you now have. I can add, I completely understand. So, so ask me this, sir, Richard, how, does a business in the knowledge economy have anything other than that? Because um, in the knowledge economy, you've got to be at the forefront, you've got to be breaking ground, you've got to be innovating. Otherwise, bet, you're, just, you're not in the knowledge economy, you're just cracking handles. Well, I think, the real, I think the reality is a lot of companies uh, carve out somewhat dominant positions, relatively stable positions, I say relatively. And then, <laughs> they, and then they engage in all of these patterns. They centralise functions, they create specialist roles. They 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 do, and so of course they have to have some pockets of entrepreneurialism and 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 the stars, you know, to to drive the business forward. So it's not like it's everybody's dead, but you still get big chunks of the organisation who are pretty disengaged and in stuck in the kind of roles you you know we've been talking about. So it's great uh, yeah. for some then. There's a, there's a small group you say it's great for. Well, when they do these engagement surveys, it's not like a hundred percent are disengaged, right? No, no. Yeah, you know, I think little little. <laughs> yeah and there's the ones who are disengaged yeah casually disinterested oh is there a box for that oh no you've got to be disengaged oh right no i'm i'm not disengaged are you sure there's not casually disinterested right. no there's not that you've got eager or disengaged oh mm. Mm. i'll put eager then you're not really eager, right no no but that's the only box that's even close I, I just, look, we, we all know what it's like. We all know what organisations are like. We all know, we all have at some point felt like a teenager in, a, in a, an oppressive household. Being a task of doing things you don't want to do. Well, even you did, and it's not, yeah. And you were the, you were the owner of the place, right? Or yeah, the place. you think I had the most choice. So like yes. you were as overwhelmed or as disengaged as anyone, right? I was. I was, honestly, I was. And I knew yeah. I couldn't carry on for much longer. And in some ways that people describe, you know, senior executive as danger pay, right? It's almost, you know, I think that's often the true truth. It's, you know, because you, you're taking your mental health in your hand, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know. When, you when see you, them when, yeah. yeah. And that's what's so extraordinary. What the pattern that emerges when I interview people who have, you know, lead, the types of these types of organizations is the space you know how relaxed people are i talked to you before can we go past the hour we've got you know 90 minutes over what we were scheduled to, yeah. to talk for and you're like well i've got to get you know the, the space that opens up for individuals uh you know at the top of organization which is it the complete inverse of course of of senior executives in the traditional yeah. let's say style of organization where they're just that you know yeah, fill I mean, up and fill up and fill up. We go to these little conferences and we sit in a room and listen to some speakers saying some some stuff. And there's a ten minute coffee break, 
everyone stops for coffee and they bang on their phones and shout at people down the phone and think, well, well, is that a life? I'm not sure anymore. It doesn't look good to me anymore. No, no. And I think it's a, it's something that obviously they've trained everybody to bring their problems to them. Yeah. The, Murray, the niggling thought, and I keep... I Go keep, on, niggling, niggling thought. thought. Yeah. I know we've been going for ages, but it's... Um, what if you wanted to do something really big, right? What if you wanted to... Yeah, let's say, um, you know, you wanted to create the next, electri- the next electric plane. You know, you wanted to create Britain's answer to electrified air travel. And you knew to do that, you were going to need a significant concentration of capital. Yeah. Uh, in order to, you know, that's a multi, obviously a multi-million pound, you know, project to create that. Can you do that on this model? Because de- you know, there's part of me that thinks, yeah, but there are for certain sort of tasks, you need such a sort of a tight accumulation of capital to get anything viable that you can't afford to disperse the sort of capital decision making uh, in the way that exists in your company. Okay, so... I agree with that, what you say. It's a, it's a valid criticism. It's a valid concern. Our organisation has built a capital buffer now, unlike we've ever had before, We're massively cash-rich, because the investment part are not consumed by people redecorating their offices and stuff. People have sat on large investment pots, and in aggregate, they come to a lot of money. Um, so we look at acquisitions and all sorts of things now. We've got... You know, it wouldn't be the first acquisition our staff have made of other companies. Um, so in terms of bringing together a capital, a fighting part, um, that has, uh, is much better now than it was before because we ring-fence things to individuals. Um, pretty much nobody spends their investment pot like it's free money. They all want to eke out if it, they can't eke out some benefit from it, they'll just keep it keep it by. So we've we've uh, established and accumulated more of that capital you talked about than ever before, and of course that makes us uh, very creditworthy as well. So we can borrow it if we need to. Yeah, but what you don't have is the ability to for, for one singular visionary. Yeah, say Julian, you wake up tomorrow and you're right. This is it this is the vision, I want to spend all our money on this, and it's a big moon shoot. Presumably your culture prevents you from doing that. Well, I'd have to, like anybody else would, I'd have to enroll others with investment parts into my program, my plan. Right. So, you know, when, when three of them get together to do a speculative bid on a, on a contract, it may be two years of work. They'd speculate together and they say, okay, we'll, we'll invest some money and see what comes out. So they have to enroll each other in that speculation. Um, and that's what it's about being entrepreneurial. But what they don't do is they don't throw money about like, like, oh, we'll just try this and we'll try that um, without um, due diligence. Right. So, yeah, uh, there's, I don't see a, a big, a big problem. We certainly, we certainly generate a lot of capital. We certainly have guys speculating on things in terms of investment. Some which pay off, some which don't. And ultimately, they earn the money that they're speculating with. 
So I don't have this great feeling of loss if it doesn't pay off. Does that make some sense? Yeah, sir? yeah, no, I know, I do see that. And in a sense, you're also tapping into the, yeah, the fractal nature, right? If, if, if you were good, if you did have some, you know, some big ambition that required a, a very large chunk of capital to make happen, you would have to go and enroll a bunch of people ordinarily, right? It's just the same process is yeah, needing exactly. to happen within your organization. Yeah, and we can still yeah. raise money externally. But, you know, there's a number of them now sort of coming forward saying, well, we want to go down the route of acquiring, acquisition. We want to go and apply this somewhere else from the, from, from the workforce itself. So, you know, that, again, is another direction. We, rather than just incubating new ideas, actually go and buy a company and, mm. and, and convert it. Um, and again, they're now talking about wanting to bring capital of their own into the business. Because, you know, working in our place for 10 years, we've got members of staff with significant, you know, asset bases of their own sort of thing, saying, well... I'd rather have the money in something that I, I understand and can control rather than in the building society, which gives me nothing. Yeah. yeah. It's a very different, it's a very different group of people than, than we started with, with that one. Yeah. Very different mindset. And just on the raw numbers, where have you gone from in terms of head? We've gone from about, um, we peaked about 30 people and we're down, down to probably, probably nine including Andrew and I, and we don't participate in the business. And our turnover has gone up, and so is our profitability. Hence the 500%. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's not, um, it's not insignificant in terms of the... What's, what's actually happened is our turnover per person has rocketed. Yeah, and they said that's exactly... Yeah, and presumably profit, profitability per, per head as well. Yeah, that's massively gone up. But, yeah, and... We, te- we regard that as kind of sanity rather than the vanity of just saying. Um, but nevertheless, we, one of the kind of dirty measures we have is just sales per person. Because yeah. we haven't significantly changed the type of work or we don't subcontract more. So being able to say this person sells £300,000 worth of stuff a year and this person does £600,000 worth of stuff a year, you know, we know generally why somebody's making more profit than somebody else in terms of pounds. Although the, the, the person who t- sells less may make a bigger margin. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Fascinating. It is fascinating. It is. That also correlates with Valve, again, another example of this, you know, who, who, who may be close to you in culture and they've got, I think, one of the highest profit per head of... In, in the states, you know, including apples and the Googles and the rest of it, right? Uh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we started off at fifty-six thousand pounds worth of sales per person, and now we're at, we're at three fifty-five or something. Wow, it's a massive increase in sales per person. Yeah, uh, you know, all that was available to us. We never, we never knew. Mm. But you know, I look at our our business sector in the aerospace industry and it's only, it's only a few players who are above that 300,000 pounds of sales per year per person mm. so you're one of the yeah. most in your sector and we've, we've gone right from the bottom to right towards the top not in terms of size but in terms of sales per person 
And we haven't just chosen to subcontract more or anything like that. We just do the same thing. Yeah, brilliant. So it's, it's real tangible stuff. Um, I, I think the message of the book is, you know, this is not a social experiment, even though it was. It, it, it was very um, engineering. It's very controlled. It's very organized, um, though very, not very directed. And a lot, of the, a lot of the books you come across in terms of exploring this more human approach to work come from the, the feelings and the, and, the, and the humanity of work. And sometimes I think that's at the expense of the practical financial aspect. The, you know, a good route map going from where you are to where you want to get to and where you want to get to has got to be a great sustainable job which pays well for everybody pays good taxes and, and is a benefit to the community and sometimes that's lost in a the dream of it yeah and, I, and I, I, I get so many people have such great ideas and you say well okay and how does it work practically and it's like well you know but if, if we did have it that'd be brilliant wouldn't it I'm like, yeah but you know I've had so many great ideas which were just rubbish when I tried them out. You know, it's just, it's, the idea's not enough. You've got, mm. you've got to give it a go and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, try again and try again. Eventually you'll come up with something which is, which is really good. So I implore people to just get on and experiment. The little corner of your organisation that you're just constantly experimenting with and playing with. Because it may only be that part that survives in the long term. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you once again. This is the book, 500% How Two Pioneers Transformed Productivity, the first truly self-leading organization. It's Matt Black Systems. Sounds yeah. like, are you still doing tours? Yeah, we, we, we host people if they want to come and have a look. Um, um, although during this COVID time, I've got to remember that. You know, that might be not, not be so easy. Um, but yeah, we're always, we're always um, open to talking to people about it and exploring it. Excellent. Most people just start with the simple process of measurement and cellularized multidisciplinary teams. That's, that usually breaks some sort of um, the mold enough for them to see, actually, this tastes good, we should do more of that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. We'll put the links uh, in, the, in the notes. And thanks, Richard. Thanks again, Julian. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.